before we read the passage, man, what a sweet weekend with the men of Kelty's. Uh, we had about 80 men at man camp Friday and Saturday. Just sweet time in the Word, talking about the importance of gospel friendships, brothers in Christ in the local church, helping one another follow Jesus. And uh, I heard from several guys saying, we got to do this more often. And uh, we plan to. So praise God. Thank you for those who are praying for this weekend. We had over a dozen guests come out, and it was just a sweet time of fellowship. Great food. Um, Man, many brothers came early and served breakfast and made breakfast, and it was great. Friends! I know, Michael. Next time, brother. I'm sorry. That was cool. That was cool. Well, if you would stand with me, uh, we're going to read... Philippians 4.1. I'd invite you to go and stand. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a a Bible in front of you. And I believe our text is found on page 982. And again, uh, my my verse (laughs) 1 of chapter 4 of Philippians. One verse. Here we go. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Praise God for his word. You may be seated. The title of my sermon is straight from the passage, the verse, stand firm. The big idea, in order to stand firm, we must, as a church, continually come under the king's word with the king's people in the power of the spirit of the king. In order to stand firm, we must continually come under the king's word with the king's people and the power of the spirit of the king. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you so grateful, so thankful, so encouraged because of the gospel and the peace that we now have because of your son Jesus. And we pray that all that happens this morning... We pray that as your word is proclaimed, that Jesus would be magnified and that the people of God would be encouraged. Have your way, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we've all heard the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay? I've actually seen that lived out. I lived in Africa in a small village. Uh, Indu, Cameroon, for the better part of 2010, teaching at a Baptist seminary, and I quickly received the name Uncle Chris. Everyone called me Uncle Chris. I was a part of the village, and uh, they looked to me to help raise the kids. I started a youth group. I was teaching at a seminary, so I was teaching adults, but love kids, and so uh, every day kids would come to my house, Uncle Chris, Uncle Chris, give us bonbon, which is candy, and Bible study, and so um, Bible study and candy. Perfect combo, right, for kids. But again, Uncle Chris, Uncle Chris. Now, as Christians, we must revise this proverb. As one pastor states, it takes a church to raise a Christian. It takes a church to raise a Christian. Do you wish to know Jesus more? And do you wish to be conformed more and more to his likeness? If so, if you can answer that in the affirmative, yes, amen, Then commit to the church, because this is where God intends 
to sanctify his people in the context, in the environment of the local church. How does Paul begin our passage? Therefore, and whenever you see therefore, you ask, what is therefore, therefore? Therefore points back. So we've got to look back. Paul, in chapter 4, verse 1, is drawing a conclusion. What has he been talking about for the past several passages? If you've been here for the last two weeks, you would know the answer, the believer's sanctification. <clears throat> sanctification is the ongoing process that flows out of justification, right? Justification is the one-time work of God where he declares those who have trusted in Jesus righteous, okay? But out of that flows the believer's sanctification. So from that definitive work comes an ongoing work aimed at glorification. And that's the day when our salvation will be brought to its final goal. Our sin nature will be eradicated. We will see Jesus face to face. We'll have resurrection bodies. Amen? That is our hope. But between justification and glorification is the ongoing work of sanctification, right? That by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, in the context of the church of God, God in His grace is making us more like His Son. That's been the last few weeks we've talked about that. Now, before we unpack this, let's first look at something imitation-worthy provided to us by Paul. Paul's main verbal thrust in our passage this morning is the verb, stand firm. Stand firm. And where do we do this? Where do we stand firm? In and with the? Yes. And with the? The church. With God's people. We stand firm together. Another African saying when I lived in Cameroon, right, the Christians there would say, oftentimes, we are together. I'd say, yeah, amen. Let's go. All right. I have two points. Number one. But from these points, there are some, like, little mini points. <laughs> Number one, we stand with the church. Philippians 4.1. Now, listen to how Paul describes the church. This is amazing. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, and in case you forgot it, my beloved. How does Paul describe the church in Philippi? Again, remember, Paul is setting an example for the church, how he relates to and feels about the church we should seek to imitate. And we saw this last week, just a few verses before this, in chapter 317, where Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. So how Paul feels about the church, how he relates to the church, again, he's setting an example for the church. Again, how does Paul describe the church in our passage? My brothers, check, whom I love, check, long for, okay, my joy, yes, my crown, and again, let me say it again, my beloved. So how can we imitate Paul's example here? How should we view the church? I'm going to take these one at a time. First, number one, we must see the church as family, as family, my brothers, my brothers, this denotes our unity. We are together, church. We are a family. And a family should be, right? A family is close relationally and in close proximity. A family is to care for one another. 
And if you know Paul, if you spent time with Paul, this is one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the church, right? Brothers, family, it denotes intentionality. Matthew Harmon writes, this is now the fifth time in the letter that Paul describes the Philippians as his brothers. He goes on to write, the term emphasizes the reality that all believers are part of God's family, born again by the Spirit of God and adopted as sons through the work of Christ. Recall Jesus' words in Mark 3, 31 to 35. It's a great text. <clears throat> and his mother and his brothers came, Jesus' mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. One of those mic drop moments, right? Oh, snap. I do that for the kids, by the way. The church is our new family. Amen? Created in Christ Jesus. It cannot be ignored. It cannot be neglected. A family must be united. We must work together. How are you pursuing church in seeking to maintain unity in the body of Christ? If you are regularly giving to gossip and grumbling, then you are functioning as an enemy to church unity. Repent of that today. Again, families care for one another, encourage one another, and they know one another, warts and all. Families are there for one another. Um, I shared this story over the weekend, and I, I said, can I share it twice? And the guy said, sure, why not? <clears throat> so when we planted a church in Washington State six years ago now, in our first year, we, you know, we were small, um, we got really close. We did a lot of things intentionally. We had almost every member or every committed family member uh, in the church in a one-on-one -on -one Bible study, in a home group. We did life together constantly. We came early on Sundays to set up in a school. We stayed late to, to clean up. We knew each other well. And so we got invited by our sending church to go to a men's retreat up in Canada. It's a beautiful place. It's a young life camp, and we rented the place out. They brought, I think, like 250 guys. We brought like 20 guys. And over the course of the four days we were there, men from the sending church, they just watched our, our small group. And every day, guys would come up to me and say, man, you guys, like, you guys really love each other. You guys really care for each other. You guys are tight. Like, th this is incredible to see. You're a family. And I was like, praise God. Amen. Next, we must love the church. So we must view the church as a family. Number two, we must love the church. This point is emphasized twice, twice by Paul when he describes the church in Philippi as those he loves and as his beloved. Now, Paul uses the same Greek word twice in one verse. And if you know the word agape, it's related. It's agapetos, agapetos. As one scholar notes, this term communicates affection and commitment. Now, why must we love the church? Because Jesus loves the church. 
Why must we love the church? Because Jesus loves the church. Does that make sense? And as Christians, we love what Jesus loves. Amen? The church is his gift to us for our sanctification. I recently met a man, a young man, was trying to have a gospel conversation with a guy. And he told me, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't really care for the church. And so I pointed him to Ephesians 5.25, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then I asked the question, do you know who loves the church? And the answer was obvious. How can you like Jesus but not care for his bride? If someone said, Chris, I like you, but I hate your wife, parking lot now. Because I'm going to witness to him. What were you thinking I was going to say? Man, you guys don't know me yet. Come on. Next, we must long for the church. I love this word. Paul says, my brothers whom I long for. This is a great word. It's a Greek word. Epipothetos. Epipothetos which denotes a yearning affection. To long for means a yearning affection. It means to greatly desire. It's how family feels when they're apart. Now, I can ask Debbie, my mother-in-law, and my mom, and of course, you know, the dads as well, but when we lived in Washington, and you saw us a few times a year, when we were apart, you longed for the grandkids. And of course, you love me and my wife as well, but you longed for those grandbabies, right? Is that how we feel about the church? I mean, can you, oh man, I can't wait until Sunday when I get to be with the body of Christ. I get to see my brothers and my sisters, and we're going to worship our king together. Do you long for the Sunday? Do you long for the Lord's day? I've often said we must see the Lord's day as a sweet family reunion. Amen? We get to be together as God's family, worshiping the king. So when you're apart, do you long to be together? This is seen, the evidence of this longing is seen in our commitment to regularly gather with the body of Christ, right? It killed Paul that he was not able to be with the believers in Philippi. Where was he as he penned this letter? He's locked up in Rome, right? He's in prison. He can't be with them. Listen to what he says. It's the same word in the Greek. Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness how I yearn, I long with great affection for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Whoa! Again, remember Paul is setting an example for the believers. Do you long for the church? How often we neglect to gather with God's people. I think many of us have a longing problem. Lord, help us. Next, we must find joy in the church. We must find joy in the church. Again, how incredible that Paul refers to these believers as his joy. He wasn't like referring to a person named joy. He's saying, collectively, church, you are my joy. Why is this important? This is truly evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. The Spirit of God moves us from selfishness to selflessness, from being more concerned about our needs to being more concerned about the needs of others. Paul could literally describe the church as his 
joy. Investing in them, serving them, suffering for them was for his joy. Again, if you know Philippians, and we've talked about this, joy is a massive theme in this letter. And it's a joy related to the church, namely the Lord's work in the church. Listen to Paul's prayer. Clark, I'm not going to have you say this out loud. I know you know it, buddy. But Philippians 1, 3 to 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is joyful because of what God is doing in the church. Therefore, his joy is really aimed at Jesus. We rejoice in the Lord for the work he is doing in his people. Amen? In this for his glory. 1 John 1. There it is. 3 to 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. All right, so let me break this down. According to John, the disciple, the beloved disciple, according to John, true joy is found in both the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationships that result from the gospel. Okay, so in the church, we have our fellow spirit-filled brothers and sisters in Christ who are committed to our growth and godliness. In the church, we have reason to rejoice Listen, you give me joy because you're committed to my growth and godliness. God in his grace has put you in my life to help me become more like the Son, and he's put me in your life for that same purpose, and because of that, I am filled with joy. Amen? That's incredible. When you think about the church, is your heart moved to joy, or are you, yeah? The church, yeah. And listen, and my wife can attest to this. Whenever I see my children, it's like my face explodes with joy. My favorite part of the morning, you know, I get up a little earlier than the kids, is when Clark and Luke come in the living room and they come embrace me. They give me a big old hug. I mean, my face is just screaming joy. Or when I hear Sam, dad, 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 in her room, she's woken up and I go in there and I open the door. Hi. That's what she does now. Hi. Oh, man. It's like a joy face punch. I love it. As we watch Christ being formed more and more in the people of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see God working in the church, using us as his hands and feet to help grow the body in godliness, Christ's likeness for the glory of God, it should bring us joy. When we, amen. When we gather, we get to talk about Jesus, pray to Jesus, sing about Jesus. Ours is a Christ-centered joy. <clears throat> New Testament scholar Richard Mellick writes, he, Paul, did not mean here that they, the church, replaced the joy of the Lord, but rather that life was better because he knew them. Can you say that about the church today? 
that your life is better because you know these, your brothers and sisters in Christ at Kelty's First Baptist Church. Can you say, life is better because I know these brothers and sisters. I have joy because of these brothers and sisters. Lastly here, we must seek to prepare the church for King Jesus. Paul refers to the church as his crown. And maybe that was confusing. His crown, what is Paul saying there? The Christian race involves preparing others for glory. You need to see the Christian life that way. Our life, as we run this race together, we are seeking to prepare one another for glory for eternity. You know, Paul often speaks of the church as his crown, his reward. It was his utmost desire to present the church to Jesus Christ on the last day, pure, spotless. These believers presented one day, holy and blameless before the king, would serve as Paul's crown. That would be his reward. Because it would be for God's glory. Think about this question. Who is the crown upon your head? Who is the crown upon your head? Who are you seeking right now to prepare for glory? Who are you passing along the word to in the church? Is this happening first and foremost in the home? Let's go back to Paul's words in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Now listen to this part. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's redemptive goal for his church is that we might be holy and blameless. He loves us toward that end. Husbands, we are to love our wives toward that end. I often ask husbands, how are you preparing your wife for glory? How are you preparing your wife for the king? What does this involve? Again, in the church, we are preparing people for glory. Amen? I mean, what, what a joy that is. And it should be starting in the home, right? The Christian home. It should be happening there for sure. We'll talk about the church as a whole. But in the home, husbands, how are you preparing your wives for the king? Are you reading God's word with your wife? Are you praying with your wife? Are you caring for her heart? Man, I, I, I came across this quote by R. Kent Hughes in an Ephesians commentary, I don't know, 10 years ago. And he asked this question to the reader. He says, does, and he's, again, commenting on Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. He says, husbands, does your wife love Jesus more because she's married to you? Oh, think about that. And Haley, you know I've asked you that multiple times in our marriage. And so far, by God's grace, she has said yes. Amen. Parents, how are you seeking to prepare your children for glory? Is intentional discipleship happening in the home? Now, church, if you were paying attention today with these baby dedications, you have the right to ask families, hey, how's that going? What are you doing in the home right now to prepare your kids for glory? What does that look like? How can I help? Okay, that's where it gets into the nitty-gritty. It's one thing to say, I'll pray for you. It's another thing to say, let me help you. There might be a dad who says, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm kind of lost here. I'm new to this. 
And if you're an older dad and you've been discipling your kids for years, spend some time with this brother. Grab coffee with him. Open your Bibles and show him what to do. Lastly, brothers and sisters, how are you seeking to prepare fellow church members for glory? Are you getting into the word with other believers in one-on-one Bible study? Again, how are we preparing each other for the king? This commitment to making disciples of Jesus Christ was at the heart of Paul's ministry. And this must be the heartbeat of the church. For Paul, seeing these believers persevere to the end would be his crown, his reward, his joy. It's the way a father feels after working tirelessly and consistently with his son, teaching him how to shoot a basketball, how to dribble, and then on that final game, seeing his son make that three-pointer at the buzzer, winning the game. It brings the father joy, right? He's contributed to that. He's, He's sweat for that. He's worked for that. And when his son does that, it's his joy. And again, Paul was motivated by God's glory here presenting mature believers before Jesus on the final day would be for God's ultimate glory, but also for Paul's joy. Again, this would be Paul's crown, his reward. We see this in Colossians 1.28. Paul says, Him we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you're not discipling other believers in the church, what are you doing? If discipleship is to be the heartbeat of the church and you're not engaged in it, what are you doing? You're essentially not in the game. In sum, love the church and commit to preparing the church for Jesus. Say with me, love the church and prepare the church for Jesus. How is this related to our next point? Point number two, we stand firm in the Lord. We stand firm in the Lord. Philippians 4, 1 again. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. In case you forgot, my beloved. I love you, church, right? So the church is the proper context for the believer's sanctification. We are to stand firm together in the church. We need the body of Christ to become more like Christ. And this was seen in last week's sermon under the point, look to godly examples and be a godly example. The church is both the context and the means for knowing Christ more and being conformed more to his likeness. Now, the key phrase in our entire passage in verse 1 is the verbal phrase, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. What does this phrase mean And how does it relate to what we've already seen? Again, remember Paul is drawing a conclusion. I would argue that this verb, stand firm, is intended to represent the entire process, the entire idea of sanctification. Now before looking at that, let's look at how Paul uses this verb elsewhere. The verb stand firm comes from the Greek word stiko. That's an easy Greek word. Everybody say, sti, ko. You're speaking Greek now. It's great. Stand firm, sti, ko. And here's what's interesting. It appears in the present tense. It's an imperative, which means it's a command. And it's in the present tense in the original Greek, which denotes what kind of action? 
ongoing, continuous. So Paul is commanding an ongoing action. Stand firm and don't stop. Stand firm, keep going. Now, this is where I'm going to geek out a little bit. You're about to have your world rocked. You're going to leave this place today, and your bench press is going to go up 75 pounds, (laughs) theologically. This section, okay, so let's just kind of go back to Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27, all the way to Philippians 4.1, represents kind of the, I would say, the main argument of Paul's letter. This is the key section, okay, so 1.27 to 4.1. Everybody say 1.27 to 4.1. Here's where, thank you. He begins and ends this section with the same verbal phrase, stand firm. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, so that whether I come and see or am absent, what? I may hear of you that you are standing. I got your attention there. Somebody's like, nod now. What? Stand firm. Stand firm. Paul wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, the verb to stand, what was it? Stiko. It means to stand firm. Got that. It means to continue in a state. It means to persevere. It means to be steadfast. So in Philippians 1.27, it's the call to dig in together with God's church Amidst suffering and opposition, we need the body to stand firm. We need the body to stay steadfast. We need the body to persevere. All right. So, I think I have this. Next slide, I think you should see, right, 127. Do we have that 127 and 4-1? I wanted you to see. Okay, so if we don't, I'm sorry. 127. It says, standing firm in one spirit. This is going to be really helpful, okay? Who's hungry? You're about to get a sandwich. It's a literary device, but it'll fill you up, I promise. So, standing firm in one spirit, and then for one, what? Standing firm in the the Lord. There it is. Thank you, guys. Sweet. What do you notice? This is so important. Okay, let me just, I'm going to go quickly through this now. We're almost done. The phrase at the end, again, this is the main section of Paul's letter, 127 to 4-1. Begins with the same verbal action, stand firm and stand firm. But again, how does each phrase end? Standing firm in one spirit, standing firm thus in the Lord. Most scholars agree, and I agree, that the spirit, the S should be capital. Standing firm in the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Standing firm thus in the Lord. Okay, here it is. Those who are united to Christ by faith have the Holy Spirit. So how do we stand firm? By the Spirit, through the Lord, He gives us the power. Yes. Isn't that cool? So what does it look like to stand firm? Paul literally takes three chapters to unpack it for us, all the way from 127 to 4.1. But we can't forget this. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the Lord by the the Spirit. You can just say, oh. 
Isn't that encouraging? It's because we're united to Christ and have the power of the Spirit that we can stand firm. And you know what's encouraging? We must always read this in light of Philippians 1.6. Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This work of sanctification, God promises, will end in our glorification. Amen? Oh, all right. Here's what I'm going to do. So from 127 all the way to 4.1, we're going to answer the question, what does our sanctification include? By what means do we do it? This is rapid fire, okay? If you want my manuscript, text me, email me. All right, standing firm. Again, 127 to 41, we do it by the, the Spirit because we're united to Christ by faith. Here's what it looks like. I'm going to quickly review the last six weeks. Rapid fire. Number one, we stand firm by looking to godly examples. That is chapter 2, 1 to 11. Chapter 2, 19 to 30, we look to Christ's example of selfless humility. We look to Timothy and Epaphroditus, their example of selfless service for the spread of the gospel. So again, standing firm includes looking to godly examples. Secondly, we stand firm by obeying Christ as king and the power of the Spirit. That is chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Next, we stand firm by shining for Jesus in a dark world. That's 2, 14 to 18. Next, we stand firm by maintaining gospel joy, remembering that because of the gospel, we have ground for joy despite our ever-changing circumstances. That's chapter 3, verse 1. Next, we stand firm by being on guard against who? False teachers. That's chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 3, 18 and 19. Next, we stand firm by remembering the gospel and its glorious result, our what? Our justification. I mean, we can stand firm knowing that in Christ we are declared righteous, no longer guilty. Satan means accuser. He has no grounds to accuse us if we've trusted in Jesus. I need that knowledge to persevere. Amen? And it's ours in Christ. And then lastly, we stand firm by embracing a singular purpose, our future resurrection. We strive for that now. And again, I thought, what does the resurrection include? When we're raised bodily on that final day, what will it mean? Sin nature eradicated. We'll see Jesus face to face. We will be conformed perfectly to his likeness. And we strive for that now. Did Paul strive for that now? Right? I mean, Paul's like, get out of my way. Singular focus wanting to know Christ more and be conformed more to his likeness. So we stand firm by keeping our eyes on our future hope, living in the present in light of our future. This, my friends, represents God's gracious plan and program for our sanctification, standing firm in the one spirit, standing firm in the Lord. And we do this together as a church together coming under the king's word with the king's people and the power of the spirit of the king. Man, I had a good nerd out moment. I'm going to skip it because of time. Let me end with this quote by Tim Chalice. This is so helpful. Tim Chalice in his book, and if you came to man camp, you got a free book. You got this book, Run to Win. It was such a good book. 
In this book, he describes the church as a what? A gymnasium. A gymnasium. Listen to what he says. He writes, the church is God's gymnasium. It is in the local church that you encounter the trainers who instruct and guide you, that you follow the training regimen God has planned out for you. It is here, now listen, it is here, the church, that you work out alongside peers who are training for their own race so you can be inspired by their labor and so that you can motivate them in return. That's a great picture of the church. We gather to be trained, or as Paul says in Ephesians 4, equipped for the work of the ministry. And he uses us to equip each other. Amen? We need the church. Again, who, who wants to grow in Christ's likeness? It's not a trick question. Okay, seven of you. Man, commit to the church. Commit to Christ and his bride and start growing. I'm so thankful for the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ that brings sinners into a saving relationship with the one true God. Can we do anything to save ourselves? Can we live good enough? No. We've sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. And because God is perfectly holy, he demands a perfect life. And none of us can pay that debt. But one has. Jesus lived the life we could not live. And because we've sinned, what do we owe God? Punishment. We deserve it. Christ took that as well. He received God's wrath for our sin and our place. What love. Amen? And then he rose again, proving that his saving work worked, that all his claims are true, that he is fully God and fully man, and in him alone is salvation from sin and the wrath of God found. Again, what does the gospel do? Those who trust in Jesus are vertically reconciled to God and horizontally brought into God's family, our gymnasium. We gather to train, we gather to encourage, we gather to come under the word and become more like Christ Jesus. Those whom the Lord saves, he sanctifies. And his planned environment or context for our sanctification is the local church. So, last two things. If you wish to be saved eternally, from God's wrath, from hell, trust in Jesus. Say amen. Amen. Okay, good. If you wish to be sanctified, if you wish to become more and more like your Savior King, commit to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your son who lived the life we cannot live and died the death we deserve. We thank you for your planned program of sanctification, your spirit-filled people, your church. We can gather, we come under your word, we pray, we use our gifts to serve each other, and we stand side by side, pointing each other to the beauty, the matchless beauty of Christ. Help us as a church to grow and to mature for our joy and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.